Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from London, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Mission aborted. President Trump calling off a planned military strike on Iran. No slacking. The messaging platform shares do the work, soaring on their first day of trade and taking on the trolls. Facebook and Twitter get set for the 2020 Democratic debate. It's Friday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Great to be back. And we've got a busy hour ahead. The focus, of course, remains on the tensions in the Middle East following reports that President Trump approved a military strike against Iran and then decided to reverse that call. We'll walk you through the latest on that and try to gauge the risk of direct military action. What, of course, that also means for investors. Let me give you a look right now. Stocks around the globe are performing pretty well. It's always tough to price this kind of conflict and uncertainty on Wall Street. U.S. futures right now a touch softer. The S&P 500, of course, hitting record highs in Thursday's trading session. The Dow now just half a percent away from making its own fresh record highs. It's the prospect, of course, of fresh rounds of global stimulus that's clearly inciting investors at this moment into buying assets and having a bit of a tranquilizer effect, I'll call it that, amid the heightened tensions in the Middle East. Both factors, though, are playing into the rally that we're seeing in gold right now trading Where are we now? Well, just below that $1,400 an ounce level. That is near a six-year high. Also giving you a look at what we're seeing for 10-year bond yields, just above that 2% figure, as you can see. What about oil prices, front and centre? Right now, we can see solid gains, more than 1% for Brent crude. It's actually risen more than 8% since the attacks last week on those two tankers in the Gulf of Oman. The other recent catalyst for the escalation that we've seen. U.S. crude up some 10% over that period too. Right, that's exactly where we're going to begin the drivers. Let's get to it. U.S. President Donald Trump ordered a military strike on Iran only to call it off again. That's according to a U.S. official. The change of mind was first reported by the New York Times. It would have been an act of retaliation for the downing of a U.S. drone on Thursday. Sam Kiley is in the Gulf of Oman in the UAE forest. Sam, great to have you with us. What exactly do we know about this decision, this order of a military strike and the apparent U-turn? Walk us through it. Well, it uh, came uh, uh, last night, uh, our time, when, and I'm speaking to you from the uh, Emirates, when uh, there was a decision taken uh, in the White House to trigger this military retaliation before any weapons were launched, though, it was another decision taken, Julia, in the White House uh, to stand that operation down. Now, this We're not exactly sure why that decision was taken. It's conceivable there may have been some diplomatic overtures or some level uh, of intelligence that may have come through. But it's very clear that prior to that decision, 
Uh, Donald Trump was reaching for reasons not to take it when he said that he believed or that there was some chance that a rogue element within the Iranian uh, administration, within the military, had triggered the downing of the drone. That has been rejected flatly by the Iranians uh, who say no, it was a very uh, deliberate act to take down that drone because it was in Iranian airspace. Of course, the Americans say it was in international airspace. But I think there is a real sigh of relief that has gone around the region because whatever people's attitudes on this side of what they call on this side the Arabian Gulf, the Persians, uh, the Iranians call it the Persian Gulf, uh, there is a sense that uh, the uh, retaliation, a military retaliation over the downing of what is a flying robot <coughs> could be seen as something of an overreaction and would certainly, uh, in many people's view here, triggered a, tr triggered a train chain reaction uh, which could have been really catastrophic. Yeah, and that's to the heart of the matter here at this stage, Sam. I mean, the president's caught between hawkish Republicans on the one side, Democrats like Chuck Schumer saying the risk here is, is that we bumble into a war situation. One, what are the Iranians saying in light of this news? And what next? Because I think everybody here has to be very careful about how they handle what we're seeing here. Well, the Iranians recently have said that they had the opportunity to shoot down a manned spy plane with some 20-plus crew members on board and elected not to do it. Now, true or false, I think that indicates a degree to which the Iranians are calibrating how they're reacting, how they're putting uh, low-level military pressure uh, to try to achieve diplomatic ends. And by that, I mean, Julia... Uh, if the Iranians, uh, as the Americans and the UK suspect, were behind the bombings of uh, six super tankers uh, behind me in the Gulf of Oman over the last few weeks, and then were over the downing, as they admit, of this drone, what they're doing is they're showing military capability without killing anybody. The moment it comes uh, into spilling of blood, uh, all bets are off and there is a real chance of a very rapid escalation. What they're trying to feel their way towards, and I think there's indications that the Americans, who keep sending messages through third parties, are also trying to do, is to get to the point at which they can negotiate. The problem there is that the uh, Iranians won't negotiate effectively until the Americans come back on board and start recognizing the terms of the deal that they signed with the previous administration uh, and many other nations, uh, but which the Trump administration abandoned last May. And that, of course, was a deal to lift sanctions in return for suspending their nuclear program. Yeah, you're right, though. A catalyst here in this sequence of events. We'll talk more about this uh, later on in the show. But for now, Sam Kiley, thank you so much for uh, bringing us up to speed with the story. The latest events, of course, in the Middle East also impacting airlines around the world. The U.S. aviation regulator has banned American carriers from flying through the airspace in the region it deems unsafe. The FAA says a commercial plane was less than 90 kilometers away from the American drone that was shot down on Thursday. Anna Stewart joins us now and she's been tracking all the details. So what exactly do we know about where the restrictions are? Because it's a whole host of different airlines that do operate in this airspace and are now are Obviously, we have to be very cautious. So, of course, all morning we've been contacting all the airlines, trying to work out who's done what. So we knew from yesterday, very quickly, United Airlines suspended their flight from Newark to Mumbai. That flew through this bit of airspace. Now we can tell you that Emirates, KLM, Qantas, British Airways all rerouting some of their flights to avoid the area. It is very specific. As you see from the map, it's Iranian-controlled airspace over the Persian Gulf, over the Gulf of Amman. 
Um, it's not hugely heavy traffic for international airlines, but obviously it now is an area that's got to be avoided. It's very complex, of course, for the airlines in this area. Yeah, and we're showing you what you can see now, and we'll see the dispute over where in the airspace it took place. I mean, the two issues for me here. One, we don't know how long this conflict, the standoff, the risks here that the FAA directly are citing here will, will continue. What about cost when you're talking about the extra miles to be travelled to avoid these specific areas now that are deemed unsafe? It's really hard to quantify. Yeah. For instance, for United Airlines, so spending a flight indefinitely, that will have X amount cost. However, when you're looking at all the other airlines that just have to reroute, as you say, it depends how far they have to. And this is the problem with the Middle East for airlines generally. It's very, very complex. Plenty of international disputes, uh, disputes between different countries. For instance, Qatari Airlines cannot fly over Saudi Arabia. Yes. Some of them reroute like a thousand kilometers. Very costly indeed. As I said, this area isn't hugely trafficked for international airlines. In fact, since the Iraqi conflict, that's when we saw lots through this area. Now, not so much. So it shouldn't have a huge impact for many international airlines. But these things always do have a cost in terms of how many hours for jet fuel, for staffing, and of course for the passengers, you have to have much longer flights as a result. You remember that you mentioned there the Qataris, obviously Etihad Airways. Mm -hmm. What are they specifically saying? Because even, it's not even just about the actions that they take, it's about how they specifically respond when they're asked questions. Are they just avoiding the subject completely and just continuing with the routes that, that they're going? Currently, the only flights that I can see in this airspace yeah. are Qatari Airlines and Iranian Airlines, and that is all I've got from the real-time data, but I'll be watching that all through the day. As you will. Anna Stewart, always great to have you with us. Thank you. All right, we've had uh, Donald Trump tweeting in the last few moments, uh, several of them, in fact, here in part. He said, on Monday, they shot down an unmanned drone flying in international waters. We were cocked and loaded to retaliate last night on three different sites when I asked how many will die. 150 people, sir, was the answer from a general. Ten minutes before the strike, I stopped it. Not proportionate to shooting down an unmanned drone. I am in no hurry. Our military is rebuilt, new and ready to go. By far the best in the world. Sanctions are biting and more added, more added last night. Iran can never have nuclear weapons, not against the USA and not against the world. So the president there suggesting that he was told lives would be lost and that that was not proportional to taking down a drone that, of course, the United States believe Iran did. So um, any further tweets? from the president, and we will bring it, but there you go, from the president himself and the decision last night to abort a mission to attack three different sites uh, in Iran. All right, let's move on to the next driver, Slack. Ready for another star turn on Wall Street, set to open higher on its second day of trade. The workplace messaging app is the latest tech unicorn to earn an ovation on the New York Stock Exchange. It's now worth more than $20 billion after its stock rocketed more than 50% from its opening price on Thursday. Paul and Monica joins us now and has been watching the action. Paul, that is a pretty stellar performance for a first day of trading. $20 billion valuation. I make that more than three times the valuation that it raised money at just, what, nine months ago in the private market. There's some uh, very happy investors watching the uh, price action over the last 24 hours. Yeah, definitely. Slack, obviously a success in its first day of trading. And there has been a steady stream of companies that cater to 
you know, corporate, uh, you know, uh, customers that have done well as of late and in the IPO market. And obviously, Slack is a bit uh, uh, of a different story here because it's not technically an IPO. It's a direct listing, which is different. They sold shares directly on the New York Stock Exchange. But make no mistake, Slack is doing extremely well, has a lot of momentum. But I think there are going to be some concerns going forward that people have to look at. The revenue growth is starting to slow a bit. They're not profitable. And then there's Microsoft in the background, which has its Teams uh, collaborative software tool. And when you think about Microsoft, they've also got Office. They have LinkedIn. They have Skype. It's going to be interesting to see whether or not Slack can fend off competition from Microsoft. And if not, could Slack become an acquisition target down the road? I love when we get worried about the prospect of revenue growth slowing to between 40 and 50, 4-0 and 5-0% here. But you also make a great point about the fact that the key difference here to what we've seen from other IPOs in recent weeks is that these guys didn't need to raise money. So I know there's been a lot of commentary on whether or not this is perhaps a model for other tech giants. Perhaps you go direct rather than the traditional IPO model. But the point is, if you need more money here, you don't have a choice, Paul. Yeah, you probably need to go public at some point. We've seen that, obviously, this year, Julia, with Uber and Lyft going public. A lot of these unicorns have been private for a long period of time, and it is now you know, the point where they have to graduate to the public markets. But if Slack can continue to do well as a publicly traded stock, I think it's going to be interesting to see the unicorns that are left out there, companies like WeWork and Airbnb, will they now consider a direct listing as opposed to a traditional IPO? Because for all the merits of you know going public through Wall Street investment banks, it hasn't really helped Uber all that much or Lyft for that matter. So one could take a step back and say, hey, look at what Slack just did without the support of uh, investment bankers and Wall Street. Why not we try that route as well? Of course, Spotify yeah. also did a direct listing and hasn't been as successful because they've had to face tough competition from Apple. Yeah, do all your borrowing in the private market and then just go direct. It's an interesting question, isn't it? But I have to say, each story and each individual uh, name trades differently and we just have to value them appropriately or at least try. Paula and Monica, thank you very much for that. All right, we'll see how it opens up today, too. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Protesters in Hong Kong once again gathering in the central business district, blocking the city's financial heart. Demonstrators are surrounding the police headquarters, accusing officers of acting with brutality during earlier protests. Let's bring in uh, Ivan Watson, who is in Hong Kong for us. It's not just about police brutality here. They want the chief exec, Carrie Lam, to step down and they want the permanent removal of this extradition bill. The question is, are they going to get it, Ivan? How do, uh, how do the executive here react? You know, most of what we're hearing for the past hours that we've been monitoring the situation is a lot of anger being vented at the police force here in Hong Kong. This remarkable scene of thousands and thousands of protesters surrounding the headquarters of the Hong Kong police, chanting shame. And if you can see right next to the sign there where the escalator is, turning the facade there into an omelet with dozens of eggs being hurled at it, the police throughout this have adopted a very passive, almost submissive posture and even uh, have slowly withdrawn while having eggs thrown at them. 
So this is a, a, a dramatic turn from what we saw a week and a half ago here in Hong Kong on June 12th when police were very aggressive. They fired more than 100 rounds of tear gas canisters, pepper spray, rubber bullets, made baton charges, detained protesters, and there were violent clashes in these very streets. It is that violence that has angered so many of the people here who were demanding their fellow protesters be released. They're calling for an investigation into allegations of uh, excessive use of police force. However, there are some questions being raised by members of society that were previously part of this coalition that was protesting against the extradition law that you mentioned, Julia. Among them, the, the Catholic Church here, which had joined in opposition against the law. But now we've had a, a, a prominent bishop raising questions about these very tactics. Take a listen. 我知道你們已經很長時間在街頭上面 you have all done a lot. You have all been very clear about your goal and demands, but I am very worried about your safety. I wish your actions would not affect the interests of the public, because if so, you will turn the people against you, and this is not good to the entire development of the event. So there we get a warning from a previously sympathetic voice to this grassroots opposition movement. It doesn't have one single leader. I've talked to people who are mobilizing the crowd. They say there's no one plan here because it is very grassroots, very young. I talked to a 17-year-old girl who came here after school to join in the protests. The signs are is that the crowd grew as people got out of work. They also ground life in the center of this international commercial hub to a complete halt by stopping up one of the main thoroughfares through the city. As one of the opposition lawmakers has put it, there is a stalemate right now in Hong Kong between the protesters and the city authorities. Julia. Yeah, it's interesting. I think if the authorities don't move more here, then we need to brace for a summer of disruption. We'll see. Ivan Watson, thank you so much for that update there. And we can hear that chanting behind you. All right, let's move on. The British Prime Minister has suspended a member of her government after he was filmed grabbing a Greenpeace protester by the neck and marching her out of a dinner in London. Mark Field, a foreign office minister, tackled the woman when she and other activists interrupted a speech by Finance Minister Philip Hammond. Greenpeace has accused Field of assault. He apologised for grabbing the woman but said he did it because he thought she may have been armed. A huge fire broke out at an oil refinery in the American city of Philadelphia. At least one explosion shook the ground and balls of gas and flame lit up the night sky. The blaze started in a vat of butane at America's 10th largest refinery. The cause of the fire has yet to be determined. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. We're coming up not so crude. All markets making moves, reacting to heightened tensions between the U.S. and Iran. And a lesson in fearlessness. Philanthropist Gene Case joins me in the chat room. Stay with us. That's coming up. Welcome back to the show. Global stocks are modestly lower amid the latest Mideast tensions. President Trump tweeting in just the past few minutes, as I brought to you earlier, that he called off the airstrike against Iran when he learned that some 150 people would die in the attack. He says he's in no hurry to strike Iran, so clearly just trying to de-escalate some of the noise surrounding this situation amid reports overnight, of course, of that military action, or at least the potential of it, and the U-turn from the president. Right now, we see futures 
pointing to modest losses at the open today in the United States. The S&P 500 set to pull back slightly here from record highs hit yesterday. Kit Jukes joins me now. He's the global head of FX strategy at Sockchain. <coughs> Kit, fantastic to have you on the show. It's interesting amid the broader tensions that we're seeing in the, the Middle East between Iran and the United States specifically, and yet we do have U.S. markets trading at record highs. We've got bonds being bought, rates coming down. Does this buying of assets that we're seeing right now make sense to you? I mean, it does in a sense. You know, the I mean, Alan Greenspan described the uh, described the the 1995 series of rate cuts that were put in. The one-time leading indicators suggested there would be a recession, which then didn't materialize right. as the Fed's finest moment under his watch. Um, the equity market went nuts for the rest of that. Um, decade for what it's worth. Uh, and they're trying to do something like that, stave off recession by acting fast because you can afford insurance when you've got this little inflation. Um, and you have to decide whether you think they're going to succeed or not. But at the moment, the market thinks they'll do whatever it takes to um, remove the risk of recession. And on that basis, let's go out and put some money in something that's got some returns. Right now, the bond market's saying it's 70% sure that we're going to get three cuts just by Christmas, but we're pricing in more cuts than that even. Again, if we get some kind of trade agreement between the United States and China, suddenly we're going to look at the situation surely and go, um, have the bond markets been a little bit too enthusiastic here about the support that's coming just from the Federal Reserve, never mind the other central banks around the world that are indicating that they're ready to ease? For sure, although there have been five, five rate-cutting cycles in the last 30 years. 49 cuts. Do it yourself on, yeah, on that basis. You can. When they go, they go. Going against the start of a Fed easing cycle by betting that the market's priced in too much too soon is, is an easy and sometimes appealing trade. Um, it has never worked in my career. So you have to be careful. But, but yes, you know, if, if this is a new, a new world where um, a stitch in time saves lives, or nine, or as many rate cuts as you want. Yes. Then, uh, th then everyone's going to feel slightly silly. But I suspect, I suspect we've got further to go on rates. It's interesting. I was just trying to make a list this morning of um, all the central banks around the world because it's not just about the Federal Reserve here. There's far more. I mean, the European Central Bank, the Australian Central Bank, the Bank of Japan. We've got Turkey. We've got India. We've got Korea. We've got South Africa. Everywhere, so many nations now are sort of looking at easing, and yet you have a call in the United States for recession in 2020. Circle that for me, please. Okay, so I think what drives the, the, the economic cycle is, is the earnings cycle. So in a typical world, you know, companies run out of people, uh, they start paying them more, that eats into their profits, the two biggest costs of costs a company faces, capital and people. So you pay higher wages, that's lost profits. Uh, then interest rates go up in response, that's more lost profits. Yes. And then the cycle turns. Uh, we've avoided the cycle for a long time. But the danger in the last year is President Trump gave the cycle a fiscal boost. So that accelerates you one way and then trying to get back under control is, is worse. Imagine him giving, I don't know, giving a young person um, some, um, some Red Bull while they're going out for their morning run. Perhaps that's OK. This is a middle aged cycle. And I'll, and I'll say it here on, on television. If you give me Red Bull before I go on my morning run, please call a doctor soon. <laughs> I'll start very fast, but I may fall in a heap quite quickly. And I think that's what this economic that's cycle is in danger of looking like. Now, you know, the Fed's very clever. They, they may stave this off, but it's, it's a fine balance. Very quickly, what does this mean for the US dollar? 
Well, the dollar will go down if we can find something to go down against. The Norwegian krona is up because they raise rates. Gold is up because gold is not a currency. It's the alternative to the dollar. And the safe haven here as well, if we're seeing border tensions elsewhere. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but it's, uh, but shortage, shortage of alternatives is the only thing keeping the dollar from falling further. Sterling? Oh, for heaven's sake. Don't talk we've about it. Too many. <laughs> <laughs> I always do that to you. And we've got 20 seconds. So I'm going to thank you. Kit Dukes, saved by the bell. From Sogjen, thank you so much. Naughty, had to try. All right, we're counting down to the opening bell this morning. Big tech preparing for the 2020 Democratic debates. We've got a story on that, which is fascinating. Plenty more to come. You're with us, move. first move. That was the opening bell back at the New York Stock Exchange. Lending Club and smiling faces there ringing the opening bell. Though we do have a modestly lower open for U.S. stocks this Friday as anticipated. The S&P 500 pulling back from all-time highs hit in Thursday's session. Right now we're losing some seven-tenths of one percent as you can see there for the S&P 500. Context everything those stocks are on track for the third straight week of gains on hopes, of course, for new global stimulus, as we were just discussing. We also saw President Trump seemingly de-escalating the tensions with Iran. More on that in just a few moments, but I do think that's very important for the session too. The global movers for now. Slack moving higher for the second straight day after its successful direct listing yesterday. We saw the shares rising almost 50% in the first day of trade. It closed over $38 a share, well above its reference price of $26, adding just three-tenths of 1% so far in the session, but bucking the broader trend. Canopy growth higher by some 2.2%. The canopy producer reporting a wider-than-expected fourth-quarter loss. It says pot sales slowed during the quarter, but investors clearly prepared for that. T-Mobile and Sprint are in focus, too. A little bit softer here for Sprint. The two telecom giants facing off in a federal court today against a number of powerful U.S. states that want to block a $26 billion merger. So we'll track developments on that throughout the day, too. All right, let's bring it back to our top story today. Donald Trump says he pulled back from an attack on Iran because he thought it would cost too many lives. The president saying in a tweet just a few minutes ago that the U.S. was cocked and loaded, quote, to attack three different sites. But he changed his mind and called off the attack 10 minutes before it was due to begin when a general told him 150 people would die. President Trump said that would not be proportionate to shooting down an unmanned drone. He also praised the U.S. military and vowed never to let Iran have nuclear weapons, oil trading higher in the session as the Iranian situation and the standoff between the two nations heats up. This follows the, the overnight spike of more than 4% for Brent and crude on news that Iran had downed an American drone. Joining us, Jason Bordoff, he's professor and founding director of the Center of Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. He served as White House energy advisor to President Obama. Jason, fantastic to have you with us on the show. What do you make of the intervention here by the president on social media? Just to point out exactly what happened, all sorts of rumors swirling about this apparent strike and the decision to U-turn after. 
Yeah, it's a pretty extraordinary uh, set of tweets this morning. And I think Trump mm. is in a tough position. He sort of boxed himself in. It's clear he wants to avoid military confrontation. That's directly what he said. But he also is seeking a strategy of maximum pressure against Iran. And it's hard to have both of those things at the same time when you apply maximum pressure and try to take Iran's oil exports to zero and you push Iran up against the wall they're going to lash out and respond. And unless we have a pathway to get to a negotiating, a negotiating table, which seems hard to see right now, uh, you're going to have these tit-for-tat uh, escalatory things. And the more the U.S. doesn't respond to escalation like the drone attack, the more emboldened Iran will feel to continue that sort of action. I mean, that's the problem here, Jason. You called it tit for tat, but we haven't seen the tat yet because the United right. States was rumored to respond and then hasn't. How do you de-escalate this situation, as you said. What is the path to negotiation here when we've had a series of events here that the United States have said have been down to Iran here, but we've also got on the other side that the nuclear deal that the United States has stepped away from. Finding a, a, a path here to negotiation is incredibly tough. It's very difficult, and I don't think it's clear exactly what the criteria are for negotiation, exactly what the U.S. wants to see and how well that's been communicated uh, to Iran. So Iran, again, when you have your back up against the wall, you're going to lash out. They were not able to take this sort of economic pressure going to zero for oil exports lying down. They had to lash out economically and try to get the U.S. out of its comfort zone that this status quo of zero or even close to zero oil exports was not sustainable from their point of view. And then at some point, uh, you're either going to have to find a pathway to the negotiating table uh, or the next Iranian response, the one after that, you know, could really call, put the U.S. in a position where they have to respond. If the U.S. is escorting a tanker through the Strait of Hormuz and some Iranian military action affects a U.S. target, there's going to be no choice uh, but to respond. You know, and we can debate whether that's the right way to act or the wrong way to act. But I, I just want to bring it back to the markets and what we're seeing in fact, the lack of response that we're seeing in, in the markets. I mean, we, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about a bear market for, for Brent and crude right now. And we've seen them rally some 8 to 10 percent since the two tankers were, were attacked here. Is it just the macro backdrop and the rise in inventories that we're seeing that is nullifying the effect of, of these tensions and the importance of the region that we're talking about? Well, we certainly seen a market response a bit yesterday. I mean, things were muted at first, but 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 uh, oil prices jumped yesterday in response to some of this. And now I think there's a more recognition about the geopolitical risk that is in the market, that the market's starting to take a little more seriously. We see Trump say he's going to meet with Xi at the G20, and so the prospects for a resolution of the trade war, which would be bullish for oil demand, are a little bit stronger. And the fundamentals in the market are, are stronger. We see refinery crude runs up, U.S. inventory starting to draw. So when you look at the fundamentals as well as the geopolitical risk and the potential for um, resolution of the trade conflict, things do look constructive, at least for the rest of this year. 2020 is still a little bearish just because there's so much supply coming online, especially from the U.S. shale revolution. I mean, there's so many angles here. What does this mean for, for OPEC and for the non-OPEC members here, too? I mean, they were struggling to even reach a date for negotiations. Now they have, at least, assuming it goes ahead. What does it mean for these guys? 
It, OPEC is in a, in a difficult uh, position as, again, trying to even reach agreement on what day they were going to meet was difficult. Nevertheless, what's going to happen at the meeting? I expect, like most people do, they will roll over the agreement. They know failure to reach an agreement would really be bearish for prices. And I think it'll be difficult to get any sort of agreement to do more. They're going to have to message this in a way where the market knows that there's flexibility and they stand ready to move in either direction, depending uh, on what happens, that you uh, clearly could see a circumstance in which there's resolution of trade conflict and and uh, some more geopolitical events in the Middle East and prices could start to run up. On the other hand, uh, it's easy to see a scenario where prices uh, take a down dive uh, later in the year as well. So they're going to have to signal, and Saudi Arabia in particular is going to have to signal that it's uh, flexible and is ready to sort of do what's needed to manage the market for the rest of the year. Yeah, and of course, we've got the European workaround potentially coming for U.S. sanctions, too, as far as Iran's concerned. So lots of uh, lots of factors here to consider. Jason, fantastic to get your wisdom on this. Jason Bordoff joining us there. Thank you for having joining you. us on the show. All right. We're going to take a quick break, but coming up on First Move, for any startup, there's a balance between taking the risk and the fear of failure. We speak to someone who's lived it and find out what it takes to be fearless. Philanthropist Jean Case joins us in the chat room. That's next. We're back in two. Welcome back to First Move. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt famously said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. In her new book, Be Fearless, philanthropist and CEO of the Case Foundation, Jean Case, tells the stories of the ordinary people who overcame fear and achieved huge success. I sat down with Jean and discussed what those individuals have in common. The subhead is five principles for a life of breakthroughs and purpose. And that really frames the book based on some research we did in 2012 at the Case Foundation, looking at core qualities of entrepreneurs, change makers and innovators. And what we found, of course, was it doesn't take any special genius or any special quality. It really is just the application of these five simple principles that help people find tremendous success and breakthroughs. I mean, the book is a collection of stories of it is. pretty ordinary people. And I use the term carefully, um, having wonderful success and achieving that. What was the common thread among these people? Because you've hinted at it, the, yeah. the ability to, I guess, take a risk and take bets. That's right. The principles really start with a big bet, yeah. then taking risks, making failure matter. You know, it turns out in every success story, there was kind of a failure road along the way. But the difference between those that break through and those that don't is they can look that fear and that failure in the face and push past it and apply those lessons. And, you know, you're right. I was born in a town called Normal, Normal, <laughs> Illinois. And really the message of the book is that it's ordinary people who end up doing extraordinary things. You know, it's interesting because it's a, it's kind of an advice book as well for someone perhaps that's watching this that has a great idea that thinks, look, I don't have the financing. I'm afraid to uh, take my attention away from my family or my right. job or what I'm doing right, right now. And actually innovation and that idea gets lost right what's your message and what's the message from the book to those kind of people? sure well as we've talked about you know startups are at a 30-year low and the first chapter of the book is called start right where you are and I talk about for instance the 
Airbnb guys, you know, when they got started, their backs were against the wall. They couldn't make rent. So what they do, they rent it out to air mattresses on their floor. They got started right where they were. I don't think they were thinking that night, let's disrupt the entire <laughs> hospitality sector. But they took what they had to apply and then, you know, slowly but surely built a big business out of that. But this make a big bet is an important mindset as you get started. You might take small steps to get yes. there, incremental steps, but the idea is aiming for something big. Chinkase doesn't just write about being fearless, she's also lived it to some degree. While working in a secure job at GE, Case took a risk and joined a little-known startup at the time called AOL, a revolutionary company at the time that helped make the internet mainstream, though admittedly it went on to face its own disruption and struggle. But you just heard her mention that the number of startups in the US right now is at a 30-year low. As to why? Well, let me tell you the state of things right now. Last year, just some data to ground it. Last year in the United States, 75% uh, of venture capital went to just three places, New York, California, and Massachusetts. Right. Florida is the third largest state now. It got less than 2% of venture capital. Women got less than 2% of women founders of venture capital last year. And African-American founders, less than 1%. So when you take that very siloed, very limited kind of focus of where capital is going, it shouldn't be surprising that we're at a 30-year low. What I say is, look, we need all the ideas and all the players on the field, and we need to back them all, no matter where they're from, no matter what they look like or what they bring to the table. If they have a great idea, let's get mentoring around them, let's get support to build new business. Is that the fault of the people that want to set up the companies and the startups that they're not making connections or the right connections with venture capital? Yeah. Or is it that venture capital is not looking outside of those yeah. states? I think it's quite clear that venture capital is not looking yeah. outside. And, and, you know, there's some, some data that also says, you know, a venture capitalist doesn't want to drive more than 50 or 100 miles from where or fly from where they are to go see deals, right? But this is changing. You know, my husband has led something called Rise of the yes. Rest, which really is is putting the spotlight on innovation all over the nation, particularly between the coasts. And you know, Julia, we're here, uh, you know, on the on the stock floor. The vast majority of Fortune 500 companies were founded between the coasts, yeah. not in the places that the you know we're sending the capital today. Yeah. yeah. So we just have to get back to being more diversified in terms of where we're sending capital, and I think it'll lead to more entrepreneurs and more great new businesses. There's a, men a message in here for venture capital, though, too. I mean, if we look at what we've seen from a couple of companies that have just gone public, the likes of Uber, and it's created this big debate about whether actually too much money is being chucked at these companies right. in the private market markets and actually they're now a bad judge of value yes and then it comes to the private market and there's a sort of rationalization and they go hang on a second you guys are now underwater yourselves because you were giving them money and it was too right. expensive yeah so there's a there's a benefit for both yeah. sides so I do think the valuations have been pretty high we've seen that we've also seen some outsized companies yeah. that in many cases create such great competition for new companies that are starting that sometimes venture capital says "Ooh, I don't want to do that that competes with Google or I don't want to do that that competes with Facebook and so in a weird way it's really having a chilling effect on innovation as a veteran of a big tech company case understands the benefits but also the drawbacks of potential government regulation she says far more will be necessary if we don't see change soon but of course there's a fine line between regulation that protects consumers without also suppressing innovation I asked if regulators are capable of finding that balance
It really was the breakup of the phone companies that started this whole internet revolution. I know I spent my career yes. on the internet. When we created AOL, you know, 3% of people were online and they were online one hour a week, okay? But it really did take some regulatory support to make sure that the big companies that could control all the access to consumers became allowed more competition. And that's really what paved the way for AOL. That's really what paved the way for all of the companies that are really, you know, using the internet as the best on what they do today. AOL was a pioneer at that point in uh, in use yeah. of the internet. As you said, we're at use of a fraction of the time now. Do you think ultimately it's other companies, other forms of technology that disrupt the big players right now? Or do you think it is ultimately regulation that perhaps the rise of yeah. It might be a combination because, as I said earlier, I, you know, we'd love to see new disruptors, and that's, of course, the, the trend in American business. Fortune 500 turns over routinely because upstarts are nipping at the heels of the big ones. But if we have a situation where the big are so big that now, you know, investors don't even want to take a chance on a company that competes, that's a problem. And that's when I think we'll start. If, if that continues, I think that's when we're going to see regulation step in. Jean says the ultimate message of her book, Be Fearless, is not how to live without fear, but just how to push through it. I asked her how she finds that courage within herself. I still feel like I, you know, live with fear all the time. What I've learned to do is push past it. And, you know, I don't know, I credit my mom, really, in the book. I was the youngest of four kids raised by a single mom. And I think she could get up every day with a smile on her face and make it all work and push past what I know must have been daily fear. And I think that was a real inspiration for me. Mom and dad, in my case. All right, let's move on. Democrats assemble, and when they take the stage for next week, the first U.S. presidential debates, it will be a big night for politics, but maybe also big tech. We'll explain after this. We're back in two. to the show and a look at today's boardroom brief. Apple supplier Foxconn is preparing for a new boss for the first time in 45 years. Foxconn chairman Terry Goh says he's stepping down, preparing to run for the presidency of Taiwan. Louis Yongwei will take over operating the world's largest electronics contract manufacturer, said Goh on Friday. Analysts say the handover is just a formality, meaning Goh is likely to keep control of the company. Rupert Murdoch is recovering from pneumonia and is now doing well according to two people familiar with the matter. The 88-year-old's health is a, a particular focus for investors as his companies enter a new phase after they sold a large part of the media empire, 21st Century Fox, to Disney last year. Walmart has settled an international bribery investigation with the U.S. government paying nearly $280 million. The case involves retailers' businesses in Brazil, China, India and Mexico. The investigation accused Walmart of having a lack of oversight of anti-corruption measures. Two nights, 20 Democrats, trolls and a big tech focus. Silicon Valley is bracing for the first U.S. presidential debates next week. We now know debate nights were heavily targeted by Russian trolls back in the 2016 campaign. CNN Business has learned that Facebook and Twitter plan to watch their social media platforms like a hawk for any unusual activity. Donia Sullivan is standing by with all the details. Donia, fascinating story. I was reading this again earlier this morning. What exactly happened in 2016 and what measures are the big tech firms going to take to try and control the fallout this time around? 
Uh, Julia, these tech companies desperately do not want to be the story next Thursday and Friday morning. They want the debate to the, the stories from the debates to be based on what the candidates are saying, not is what is happening on Twitter and on Facebook. Uh, we know in 2016 that Russia targeted uh, the American political process. They had sent millions of tweets and Facebook posts over a number of years. And as part of all the investigations going into uh, that activity, we have this huge trove of data, the posts, the tweets from 2016. And we can see on debate nights right from the start of the Democratic uh, primaries and the GOP primaries in 2015, all the way to the final presidential debates in October 2016, that Russian trolls loved debate night and they were particularly spreading messages that were really uh, i guess seeking to undermine the whole concept of the debate a lot of you know reviewing uh, the posts they had sent a lot of it was sort of putting out there well what's the point of these debates it doesn't even matter um and th- that's sort of just trying to sow di- division i guess but also questioning uh, the entire democratic process Speaking of undermining the case here, Facebook and Twitter are going to work together. But I just remind myself of the conversation we've been having about the Nancy Pelosi fake news video that that Facebook wouldn't take down. YouTube, of course, did. So we should draw that distinction. But how can you say, look, we're going to tackle one source of fake news, but not be willing to take down fake videos like that? I just I just see so many conflicts here and I'm not sure the message is clear. I don't really trust what they're doing here. Am I right or am I wrong here? Am I uh, overanalyzing? Well, I think they certainly have, there is certainly a, a trust problem with these platforms with Silicon Valley. Uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, herself came out uh, in the weeks after that video and said, you know, Facebook essentially wittingly is, is aiding uh, Russia or peddlers of disinformation by not removing this sort of content. I mean, this is sort of, I think, the nightmare situation for, for Facebook uh, and Twitter as a business is that what if a fake video emerges uh, after the debate um, that makes it look like a candidate said something or is caught in some sort of way that is extremely misleading and it goes uh, viral on Facebook on uh, Wednesday or Thursday night? Uh, will Facebook decide to move, remove that or will they do this thing where they say they downrank it, it's seen by less people but it's still on the platform. So there's going to be plenty of debates, there's going to be plenty of opportunity um, for uh, this sort of stuff to happen and uh, I know uh, Facebook and Twitter at least are going to be watching it very closely. Yeah, tough to gauge what success looks like here. Um, yes, we shall see. Donia Sullivan, thank you so much for that story. Fantastic, uh, fantastic news gathering there. All right just about wraps up the show. I'll give you a look once again at what we're seeing for markets under a bit of pressure. A lot going on, of course, amid the tensions in the Middle East. I'll be back in a couple of hours time to keep you abreast of all those stories. But for now, that's it for the show. I'm Julia Chesley. You've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. Happy Friday. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. 
It could be used on an upcoming episode.